Hello and welcome back to another episode of Under the Lights. It's been a couple of weeks since our last episode and we are returning to Kingston Corner. We're going to look at how Saints have started the season. Have they done better? Have they done worse than we expected? We'll also be looking at the transfer dealings as we get closer to the end of the window. How have Southampton fared in the transfer window and can they bring in anyone else before it slams shut on Monday night? We'll also be looking at the Premier League. Have any teams surprised you? Well, also be focusing on how many of the games have been ruined by the new handball rule as that has caused a lot of controversy so far in the opening matches. You'll get our opinions on all of those topics in this episode. My name is Tom Murray. My name's Callum Wilson. This is Under the Lights and we're off to Kingsland Corner. So we are just a few days away from the uh, transfer window shutting. Southampton have played three league games and a cup game. The England squad's been announced and there's already talks about the handball rule and whether that should be changed. We're going to go through all of those topics. A little bit of a different feel to this episode, Tom. Usually we're, we're quite subjective and we'll only talk about the facts and, uh, and what has and hasn't happened, but... We'll be throwing in a bit of opinion. We'll also be talking about the speculation with only a few days left of this transfer window as to who's been linked with Saints, what we think uh, is needed, and our opinions, really, of, of what a transfer window has been so far. Let's start then, Tom, straight into it. The performances on the pitch. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about off the pitch when we come to those transfers, but on the pitch, it's been... Uh, an unsteady start from Southampton and is it a case that we've paved over the cracks with that 1-0 win at Burnley or do you see that as a bit of a turning point after a stuttering start from Saints? I'd like to see it as a turning point although the the way that we played we played completely differently against Burnley there wasn't much of the high press we'd managed to get that early goal in a game which really there was very little attacking play by either side and I have a feeling that if that goal hadn't been scored, then that could have easily been, you know, ended 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 goalless. Burnley's a really tough place to go. Saints haven't won there in eons, and it's a it, it, it's always it, it's good to get the first first points on the board. And but I suppose another positive is that the two performances previously, the one especially against Spurs, completely trounced through the defence. So to have that defensive solidarity never really looked troubled against a side that can cause cause a lot of problems and certainly did last season is uh, is, a, is another positive and to get that clean sheet. So with West Brom as the next game before we go into the international break, we can get a positive result against West Brom. We've then we've got two four games played, two losses, two wins. And to be honest, two six points out of the first four fixtures is not a bad return. Yeah, I'd play devil's advocate a little bit and and say that we played a Burnley side at a good time. Um, there's clearly unrest there. Deutsch's not happy with the lack of funds from the board, somewhat similar to uh, Arsenal and Southampton. They had, I think it was four or five academy players on the bench We've never played a Premier League game and we, we went there and did a professional job but never really were under any threat. It wasn't a typical Burnley performance. You, know, you, you never get anything handed to you when you go to Turf Moor and I felt like Southampton really didn't need to work that hard. Got the early goal, great goal, great ball from Walker-Peters. Adams did fantastically, eyes in the back of his head and then Danny Ings found a way as he always does whether it's a deflection or a toe poke or what gets the ball in the back of the net 
and it's 1-0 and from there not too many chances for, for the for the neutral I'd imagine a very tedious and boring game but from uh, a Saints fan's perspective uh, so desperate already to try and get on the board after uh, two league games and a cup game with no win I think that 1-0 would have been taken by absolutely everyone uh, before the game started so, so for me positive is that we got on the board other huge positives were the performances of Romeo and especially Vestergaard who again we say we didn't have too much to do but he dealt with everything in the air looked composed on the ball and I'd, I'd love to think it's a turning point with Vestergaard we'll, we can talk about him a little bit in more detail later but my worry is that certain games you just can't play him he's too one-dimensional and against certain strikers he will lose your games uh, so yeah we may look back to um, to bossing that midfield which we haven't seen so far this season and I agree with you I think Burnley away three points that's points on the board you know you don't want to keep going you certainly don't want to get to the international break without a single point on the board so to get a win is important I think we'll be able to answer that question of whether it's paving over the cracks or is a decent return like you said after the West Brom game because I think this is a pivotal point in the season for Southampton uh, six points from the first two games after a shaky start is a positive West Brom at home is a fixture that every single team in the league should be winning and I think it's a really vital game for Southampton because it, yeah, we didn't have much of a, a gap between the end of last season and this season and in the last two years, it's no secret that our home form has been diabolical. And that seemed to have continued into that 5-2 thrashing at the hands of Spurs. If we can go into our second home game of the season, and then, well, third home game, if you include losing at home to Championship side Brentford, I think it's really vital to kind of get that monkey off our back. Because if we fail to win or even lose at home to West Brom, suddenly you've got three points from four games. You've lost every home game this season so far. And uh, two of which you definitely would have been expected to win in, in Brentford and West Brom. You win that game and all of a sudden you've played two home games in the league. You've won one, you've lost one. We forget about last season. Maybe we can start to put that home form aside and start again and, uh, and with a win and a loss. So... I think winning a game that we should do, it won't be easy against West Brom because we do find it very difficult to break down sides and defend and I can only imagine that's what West Brom are going to do. I think when, when West Brom come to town, they're going to put men behind the ball. They haven't got great defenders individually, but they will try and uh, scupper Saints and it's about whether we can break them down and it's about whether we can take our chances for the likes of Ings and uh, Adams up front. What are your thoughts? First of all, on West Brom and and what you think is going how you think it's going to play out uh, at the weekend as we uh, record this is Thursday night so just in a couple of days and then also uh, give us a give us a bit of a, a recap on what you what you thought of Saints' performance and, and if you wanted to highlight any any individuals for for the right or wrong reasons against Burnley yeah the West Brom game the as, as you pointed out it's one that every team in the league is going to look at as a as a place to they expect to get three points. And we know these type of games for Saints, especially with the home form, this is not something that happens and they actually really struggle against these type of teams at home. So it's a, it's a pivotal point, as you said, you can get three points against West Brom. 
then you know that that is the monkey off our backs and we go into the international break with six points before they played Chelsea I looked at West Brom and I thought this is a side that leaked goals yet they have a couple of decent players going forward Dean Garner especially one of them I think now that they've played Chelsea I'm not a lot of people may say oh they gave Chelsea they really should have beaten Chelsea 3-0 up and a lot of people will say that okay West Brom are going to be a, a, a tough team to face and they will they will be a tough team but what that game also showed was that they are very weak at the back. Their goalkeeper, Johnston, is not very highly rated and he seems to have incredibly uh, limp wrists to save most of the shots. Um, West Brom fans don't rate him. Now, obviously, they went 3-0 up. However, my thought my thought process here is that a lot of these smaller teams that come up, newly promoted sides that come up, they raise their game against the big sides early on in the season. We saw that with Norwich beating Manchester City last season. West Brom, they went 3-0 up against Chelsea and they deserved it. They were clinical. However, for West Brom and the newly promoted sides, it's the games against the teams that are, are around them that they that they tend to struggle if they want to stay in this league. They can produce it against the big boys, but what we saw with Norwich was that when it came to teams around them, they struggled to pick up the points and that's why, where they fell short and went down at the bottom of the table. West Brom... Uh, they're going to need to put on a really good performance, but it's also going to be a different performance against Southampton because, you know, against Chelsea, you're going to put everyone back. Whereas at Southampton, it's may, especially with the home record that we have, they're going to look at that and think, OK, we can get something here. How we play, we could hold hold back and then try and frustrate them or we could give it a go And because they certainly have good players on the break. I think the way it's going to play out, I can easily see it being a frustrating game for Saints. I can see it just just because of the way that we that we played at home, and the fact that I don't think West Brom are going to come too far out. I think it's going to be quite difficult to press them. I think it's going to be decided by just the one just the one goal if there if there is a decider. But if we can get a goal early, and I know we say that against pretty much every single team, if you can get a goal early, especially against a team that's probably going to sit back, then obviously that forces them to come out and play, and that's when Saints can then find their mojo. And if Saints can get hit hit them early unlike against Burnley where we hit it early and then it's a case of controlling the game because Burnley you know they're still quite a solid side against West Brom if we can take that early lead then it's a case of West Brom have to come at us and that's where we saw last season when we got into that run at the end of the season Saints then play their best stuff they can get a couple more goals but I think if unless there is no early goal, I think it's going to be quite frustrating, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it nil nil or one one. It's interesting because I mean both both sides concede goals, um, so you'd think it would be more of a two or a thrill. But I think you'll see a different away performance from West Brom to the one you saw against Everton, where they came out, they dominated Everton for the first twenty minutes. They got that goal from uh, Dean Garner, good goal, and they and they looked at a decent side. Suddenly, everyone who had them finishing bottom. Uh, for the season thought you know they look quite handy Pereira is a fantastic player we all knew that from the championship so I could see them coming at Southampton and getting an early goal the only reason I think they maybe won't is because they have conceded uh, they conceded three goals last time out they conceded five against Everton they conceded three in the first game of the season so they've conceded 11 goals in three games so you would think they would have been spending the week working on shape uh, form, being rigid, being organised, being strong, and they'll take that philosophy into the game against Saints, try and draw us in, because they know we're a counter-second side, and uh, we're best when we don't have the ball. At home, which is part of the reason we said it before, we have the ball, we try and break teams down, we can't do it, and they'll be looking to hit us on the counter-attack with the likes of Pereira, with the likes of Dean Garner, with the likes of Robinson, who got 
goals for uh, for West Brom against Chelsea and it's pacey up front. So we have to be aware of that and we have the, the better quality, certainly in forward areas. And I'd be hoping that Adams and Ings can come up with something to win us that game. What would be interesting is I'd imagine he's going to play Vestergaard again after that game, after that performance. We'll get your thoughts on that performance in just a second. You just wonder, based on what I just said, with those three attacking flair players that have real speed as opposed to man-marking Chris Wood and winning everything in the air at Turf Moor. Could this be one of the games where Vestergaard is outed and he's he's shown up and he's, he's targeted as a, uh, as a potential weakness to that counter-attacking style? He is good on the ball and that might help Saints when trying to turn defence into attack because what he is good at is playing through the lines and being quite quick in transferring the ball into the front players, which we'll need before they get every man behind the ball. But what do you what do you think about him? I mean, I'd, I'd expect him to start. How did you see him against Burnley, amongst other players? And what did you just make of the performance overall going into that West Brom game? I thought it was a really refreshing performance. You know, we, we didn't play the line as high. We were incredibly solid and quite rigid defensively. And we played the way that Burnley would have hated us to play by basically not really pressing too much, didn't give them the opportunity to try and hit long balls over the top. And I thought that Vestergaard especially did really, really well. Um, He didn't really have much to trouble him, but, uh, you know, that just made, it was such a solid performance by by Saints that Burnley never really actually, we never really felt that troubled by them. We were winning everything aerially. Uh, Burnley was struggling to get down the side. And when they, when they couldn't get further down the side, they were just hitting early crosses in, which were just being gobbled up by Bednarek and Vestergaard. So I thought it was really, really good. And actually, it was one of those where the midfield itself of Saints, Romeo and Ward Prowse, almost felt anonymous in a good way in terms of we were just so controlling it in the middle that it was a case of you didn't really notice those two players or they didn't really pick because they didn't make any glaring errors. It was just tidy in the middle. And when the game did sort of, reduced to head tennis as it did quite a bit in the second half when Burnley were trying to apply some pressure when it finally calmed down you know we controlled the temper of that game completely and I think that was especially down to and was shown by the performance of Jenepo who I was watching the game and I was thinking I was almost screaming at him just like why are you not taking the ball forward Um, because he had plenty of opportunities to take it forward but every time he was passing it back slowing down possession and then I thought this is someone who we see week in and week out running at players trying to do several skills to get past them he's actually he's going back and that seems more like a like um a, for tactical reasons just keep our shape because we've got the lead we don't necessarily need to go for another because Burnley don't really have the firepower at the moment and at the moment we have the game under control and we rarely went forward I can't remember if we actually had a I think we only had one shot in the second half something like that so it was a really good defensive control performance very dissimilar to the one against Spurs where we were just completely open at the back and why we kept on playing a high line even at four or five goals down was really quite baffling. In terms of West Brom, yeah, they've got pace. Vestergaard may not be suited for this one. It may be a case of Stevens or Bednarek. I'd be very surprised if we threw Salasu in. I think that he will be introduced after the international break. Yeah, yeah agreed for that. But I think from what I've seen of him, what I've heard of Salisu, I think West Brom could actually be a decent game to have him in. He is quite fast and he is able to play the ball well on the deck. The only problem with that is it just seems, it seems natural to just 
instead of throwing him the game before the international break to just be like, right, sit out this one, then we'll get you in involved for Chelsea for Everton. Give him that extra two weeks, then you give him an extra two weeks rest for whatever he needs, for whatever reason he's being given it. Yeah, I do agree. I think pace going forward. I'm really intrigued to see. I, I, at the moment, I could see it being him and Bednarek when it comes in. But it'll be really interesting to see if he and Vestergaard will complement each other because they both win the ball well in the air. But you've also got that pace of Salasu and will compete as the other side if he starts reading the game better defensively to almost get Vestergaard out of jail in those moments where maybe his pace lets him down. Just before we, we talk transfers and Salasu and Walker-Peters obviously being the only ones we've done, it's interesting what we say about Gineppo. He was clearly given a job to do, wasn't he? And the uh, consensus, you know, yourself, myself and, and just about everyone, was that we didn't understand why he was going at Bardsley, uh, get him one-on-one, and then he'd just slow it down and come back. Um, and look like he had no interest to attack. He was clearly given a job to do against Burnley, where we need to be as organised and rigid as they are, and we need to work harder. Against West Brom, it'd be interesting. Uh, would you play him or would you play Redmond? Because I saw a stat the other day that West Brom have conceded, I don't know the number, a very, very large number of goals to players <coughs> attacking down their right, so the left wingers. So if Gineppo does play, I'd expect him to play a completely different role to what he played against Burnley. Redmond's back in training, though. With that obviously being a, a weak part of the team for West Brom early in the season, would you go with that flair and unpredictability and kind of raw attacking pace and skill Gineppo can offer you or would you go with the more experienced Redmond and uh, Bertrand combination down that side I think I'd actually start with uh, Gineppo purely because he's a bit of a jack-in-the-box and when he does get going down the left side he can really bamboozle defenders and not only can he he can provide danger down the left side but also West Brom they're, they're quite susceptible to diving in and you know, um, and diving in with those challenges, so we could win a fair few set pieces out on that left side, and we know how dangerous War Prowse is in and around the penalty area. I then have Redmond on the bench, and then bring him on for Jennifer. Maybe if it's not working, and then you can have two different sets because if we're winning and it's coming into the second half, West Brom. The last thing they're going to want to see down that weak side is one attacking midfielder coming off for another just as experienced player, a more experienced player coming on who still has that raw pace. I think it's a shame because I think that if, if we're not going, whether he goes or not, I think it would almost be an ideal opportunity to have Buffal on the left side because he would offer a lot of trickery, a lot of flair. And I, re- I think he could have the West Brom defenders sort of with tangled legs. Um, but obviously, we don't know what's going on. With he did him. a couple of years ago with that famous score. Exactly. So I don't. We. It seems likely that he's going to go. He's not been involved in any of the match day squads. So I think that we can assume that that he's he's not going to be included. Uh, I'd I'd have Jennifer. Would you have Jennifer over Redmond, or would you have Redmond down the left side? It all depends on it all depends on his, his fitness. I think if he's fit purely for the combination play between Redmond and. Bertrand getting that overlap, drawing out the, uh, the right centre-back from the three in the back and really just kind of asking different questions. I'd probably go with Redmond because, um, interestingly, I, I like the idea that Gineppo can come on and run at tired legs. I think that's more his game than Redmond, who I think is, is more of an all-rounder uh, in terms of a footballer. I think Gineppo is someone you really get on to attack one-on-one, uh, weary legs. But either way, I think both of them will have a part to play. We mentioned Salasu then. Let's uh, let's move on to um, the big talking point at the moment, which is the transfer window or the lack thereof 
from uh, from a Saints fan's perspective. We put out on on Twitter what, what people's thoughts were. A funny one from from Anthony who came back and said, "Is the transfer window even open?" The Saints did some business early. They got Salisu done very early before the season even even finished. We, we knew that was on. It took a while to announce it. We knew that was on. Walker Peters took a little bit longer with the whole Hoybier fiasco, but he was on loan last season. That was quite an obvious scenario. Those players came through a long time ago, and there's been nothing since. We've sat here looking online, hearing rumours, hearing players that Saints are interested in, and there have been a lot of them. And for one reason or another, or another, or another, they haven't been going through. Just briefly, what, what is your... I mean, we're not pretend to know anything, but what is your view on what's going on at the club? Because Harsen Hurtle's made it clear that he wants to sign players. It's been made pretty clear that we can't buy without selling. But then recently, I'm sure the board came out and says there are funds and it's not a case that we need to sell to buy. I mean, what's happening at board level and, and why can't we get any of these deals over the line, especially a midfielder? I think we're incredibly hamstrung by previous transfer dealings. Obviously, the likes of Hoots, of Lamina, uh, Carigio, players on big money, players that we brought in for big transfer fees. They haven't worked out. Elianusi as well. These likes of players have sort of financially got t- tied our hands, as it seems, and what we've seen in the press about how we need to we need to sell in order to buy and whatever. And then we've got these big wages to get off the books as well, and we've been trying for years to get rid of these players. Obviously, Ralph has come out publicly and said he needs these players, and we've heard. You know, we want two to three, and now as we get closer to the window, it's a case of can we at least just get one? It seems that from what again in the press is it going to? It's likely to be someone on loan, unlikely to be a permanent transfer. We'd be, I'd be very surprised if it was a permanent transfer. I just feel that at the moment it's almost one step forward, two steps back for the past couple of windows. We start them really, really well. Like last season, we've got Adams and Jenna Poe in straight away. This season, we've got Salaster and Walker-Peters in straight away. And then we sort of lose our heads for the rest of the transfer window and suddenly we're left with a couple of days trying to get someone in. And last season, we saw how that worked out. Kevin Damzo, and I can't remember if we even played him in a centre-back position at the time, and it didn't work out. And now we're left with you know a few days to go. And it's a case of... Well, we it, it annoys me because we've known for a year or so that Hoybier is going to go. And I know that it's been in the press that lots of deals have maybe hit a hitch for one way or another. But it's coming to the last couple of days to get someone to replace him. And for me, I'm thinking this is something that you should have sorted by the first week or so or the second week of the transfer window opening. Yeah, it's interesting. A, a, a question I've been wondering is, is it poor planning? Is it bad luck? Or is it a deliberate strategy to wait this long? Because clearly we had our ducks in a row at the beginning of the season with sorting out the centre-back, mainly because we knew for well over a year that we needed a centre-back and in the end panicked on Dan. So last season, we're getting Gineppo, we're getting Adams and everyone's crying out, where's the bloody centre-back? We've obviously sorted that out and got the deal done with Salisu. Although, having got the deal done, apparently he's not match fit. I don't understand what's going on there. He must have had some sort of injury. Took forever to announce. We're led to believe due to, to, due to quarantine coming over from Spain. But then we're four games into a season 
Uh, and he hasn't got match fitness when he was playing in La Liga last season and we've barely had a break. So I don't understand what's going on there. But he's been brought in, uh, presumably in the knowledge that he's not going to be able to play until after the break. Then we get Cole Peters in. That took long enough, considering that we had him on loan last season. It seemed that, like the agreement was pretty much there. They wanted Hoiberg as well. We ended up getting that one over the line. There's been talk and there've been mutterings of different types of players. A quote that really interested me from Harson Hertz after the Spurs game was that he, he was talking about quite openly about the fact that he we need players. Yeah, we just lost five two, so he's he's throwing that at the board, saying that we need players and we will get a few in by the end of the season. Saints fans thought, oh, brilliant. You know, the manager's guaranteeing us we're going to get a few. I think the, the board came out and said we will sign a centre midfielder we will sign a couple of players before the window's up still hasn't happened he, he said after that 5-2 game in the last couple of weeks we will get the chance to sign players we usually wouldn't get so and that was a couple of weeks ago so they were looking three weeks before the end of the window at the idea that when the window starts to close there'll be opportunities perhaps to get players for less money or on loan for a cheaper route around it and it's kind of going along the um, Daniel Levy model of waiting almost until deadline day to kind of get a panic sale out of someone if you imagine it if someone came in for Carrillo on the last day of the window and offered us 5 million they'd get him for 5 million yeah so someone that's maybe not needed but we want off the books so maybe Saints are looking at that I think it's a risk especially considering that we've already had a few games of the season and we lost our former captain centre midfielder yeah, Emil Hoybjerg. But you hear that a number of things haven't gone through for all different kind of reasons. PSV beat us to uh, Sangara. We're led to believe that that was because Saints were slow and the reason behind that was because a work permit wasn't possible. That would have been a £7 million move. Money's tight, obviously. £7 million midfielder from, from a second division of, of France, I believe. So... That didn't happen. We're now talking about uh, Diallo from Brest, but now it looks like as soon as Leicester showed interest, suddenly it looks like we've just gone, okay, well, we're not going to get in a bid anymore. And doesn't seem like that's happening. And there are loan moves for Tom Davis, which um, I think we may be keeping in our back pocket as a almost last resort, maybe towards the end of the window. Talking Veerman uh, from Heronveen, but maybe he's more off the future so it looked like we've had targets and they've slipped through our fingers for one reason or another the latest is uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Alex Crook on TalkSport today not not too long ago an hour or so ago I tweeted it said that um, it sounds like West Ham are now the favourites because he's on 100k a week and Southampton would be asked to pay the vast majority of that by Chelsea which we're not going to do because we don't have the money uh, Barkley went to Aston Villa, but apparently they paid £11 million for that. Obviously, we weren't going to do that to have them on loan for a season. So, in, in the current times, I know everyone's dealing with the same thing, but they're not because other people have got investment. We don't have investment from our owners. We have to work on a sustainable structure within our club. Uh, we sell to buy. And you make a really good point, uh, and one that I've, I've thought of uh, myself recently, that a lot of teams are having to sell to buy. And we are really struggling and have struggled for years to get Wesley Hoot, Mario Lamina, Sofian Buffal, Guido Carrillo off the books. 
and it sounds to me like there might be a very busy door or exit door at St Mary's on the last day of the season with Lazio putting off the whole Wesley Hooten thing because they're in the same situation, put off two medicals. He'll go, but he might only go on loan last minute. Carrillo, we might have to terminate his contract. Um, obviously, Lamina's gone. Buffal is rumoured to be going for a very low fee. So I think all those things might happen right at the end of the window, and that might start the, the merry-go-round, the domino effects, however you want to call it, for us to be able to bring players in. And I just hope the players we've got lined up or interested in aren't either gone or it leaves us without enough time to get the deal over the line. And, and I think that a combination of those things, lack of investment, needing to sell, to buy, and the, the hiccups that we've had with other players. But I do agree with you. What they, what they should have had, like we used to have with the black box, a long list of players in order of who would suit us in each position. And if even if we had 10 of those, one of those surely would have come off by now. It's a case really of, it, it's a very dangerous strategy because obviously if you're looking out for these players and then you don't get them, suddenly you're left with a paper-thin squad after promising new signings you've then got quite a disgruntled manager and I'm I'm worried that with Ralph we have a really forward-thinking manager we've got a really decent manager who I think can take us places but it's a case of when he does leave one way or another if he's poached by a bigger club or he decides to walk because he's not got the resources it's a case of us as fans will we look at his tenure and think what if because he is a really good manager, but it's a case of could he have got us European football? Had he what what if he had had the investment that he wanted? What if we'd managed to get in some of the a lot of the players that he did want? Yeah, we've got the likes of Salasu, Adams, Jenapo, players that he wanted, but also it, it's just like it's one out of me, out of many. Whereas he essentially the team is still very very similar to the one that he took over uh, that Mark Hughes left him. It's still very similar personnel and Saints have been incredibly lucky that over the last year, Danny Ings has turned into a goal scoring machine because without Danny Ings, I'd hate to think where we would be as a side. We'd probably be talking about our first few games of the championship season, if I'm being completely honest. And that's that he, Danny Ings is someone that sets us apart from the teams that are in and around us. And I don't want to get on to a long discussion about how vital he is or whatever, because we know it's been, everyone knows that uh, take Danny Ings out of our team. And it's quite scary as a fan of just where would we be? But really it's still the basis that it's still a lot of the squad that Mark Hughes left behind. And it's a case of if, Ralph had had the investment if we were quite if we were a rich club that we did have cash injections from the owner we were able to spend I don't know 50 60 70 million in a transfer window what could Ralph have achieved and I don't want it I don't want that to be what his tenure is known for as if a case of the maybes the ifs the buts because at the moment he must and I don't want to obviously we don't know what his thoughts are aside from the fact that he wants players in it's a case of he must be quite frustrated that he this season has been this summer we finished last season so well this summer was a really good opportunity to then sort of kickstart get rid of the relegation tag 
that has been around our necks for the last couple of years, relegation candidate, and finally push on and get into the top half. Now, we may still do that. And it's only, it's very early in the season. We still may get players in at the end of the window. But I feel that it's a chance that so far, if we were to end the window now, it's a chance that we haven't taken. And we're relying heavily a lot on these players to then get to the same levels as they were last season. Do you think something that that and that terrific end to the season might actually work against Harsen Hudson with the board? Uh, they might have looked at that and thought, oh, actually, there's a, there's a short gap uh, between the end of last season, which finished so well, Saints were absolutely fantastic, to now. Do you think they were, there's maybe a chance that they were trying to usher that team through? So we've got a couple of good early signings. We've got Walker Peters permanently to stay. We've got Sally Sue's going to come in uh, to fix that defensive problem. But the rest of the team was on fire. He was pulling up trees with that squad. So why, why, you said it's an opportunity, but why buy four or five players to change a squad and then maybe have to start again and, and gel again? Uh, if we if we ended the season poorly, maybe like an Aston Villa, for instance, you see what they're doing, there might be more of an urgency to, to make things happen in the window. But now uh, it's more of a case of don't buy unless we absolutely need to. I wouldn't think, I think they'd have plans in before that. But like I said, we've got two deals over the line early and then nothing since. Do you think maybe that might have worked against them? I, th- I think it may have done because obviously the, the team were, what, the third? The, they were third in the form table for the end of the season, played absolutely superb football. We're winning games left, right and centre, playing really good stuff as well. Um we thought that maybe we'd be fine without Hoybier because he didn't play for the majority of those games and Smallbone came in and when the whole team's playing well, every, every player's doing their part. And maybe you think, oh, we'll be fine with Smallbone, Romeo and Ward Prowse. And I think in, unless it, it, I, I think it's the case of if we do have an injury, then we're, when we're in a bit of a problem. I think it's also quite similar to the, the, the season where we had the summer clear out, the summer of, every, of Lambert leaving Lalana and... Les Reed got incredibly lucky with the fact that all the signings that he made pretty much worked. And then we thought, OK, we can continue this for a long time. We can sell we can we can sell for expensive prices, but we can also buy cheap. And as we've seen over the past years, our luck has run out in terms of finding gems. I think performing so well under Koeman in those first couple of seasons sort of um, blinded us in a way of this can actually work long term. And I think Leicester are the perfect, like the epitome of it can work long term. However, they've managed to get funding from being an, and sort of global recognition from the fact that they won the Premier League and they've also played in the Champions League and they're in European football. So that we didn't do that in our time. We finished sixth, seventh and eighth and we got to a cup final. We played some European football and we kept on thinking that we could continue doing this. And I think that sometimes, yeah, that good run of form, it can make you feel that, yeah, we don't need to make reinforcements. We don't need to make as many signings, but it's just been shown from the start of the season that Ralph has gone from we're happy with the squad to I need two, three players. Yeah, I think, I think really you just got to look at it at those last nine games we have had the exact same squad for the first four games of this season. Walker Peters was already there, Hoiberg was already gone, and Sally Sue wasn't on the pitch, and he isn't now. So we've almost got to the end of the window with exactly the same squad. There are four days until the, the window shuts. We've heard a long list of names, all really central midfielders over the last week, a few wingers as well. What would you consider the bare minimum before the transfer window 
for us to say, okay, we've had an all right window. To have an all right window, I would... To not be disappointed when the the window shuts. Signing a central midfielder, whether permanent or on loan, as long as it's not Tom Davis. And I don't... Midfielder. What do you want for a midfielder? A versatile midfielder. I mean, as we, we were discussing earlier, how Loftus Cheek would be an ideal signing purely because he can play in the central midfield, but he also can play further ahead. And if Armstrong gets injured, we know just how um, how weak our attack seems to get, and how how poor and how la- the lack of ideas we have. So yeah, uh, really a central midfielder who can maybe play further up uh, as well. Someone who's versatile. I don't. The the thing is, if we were to do that, and then we brought in Tom Davis, I'd be completely underwhelmed. And that's nothing against Tom Davis as a footballer itself, but when you've known, you know that Hoiberg's going to be going for such a long time, and then you think of all of the replacements you could possibly have, and then you get some, you get, you get him on loan for a season. You think, wow, that's uh, that's a bit. Yeah. He's like essentially with the way Romero played against Burnley. He and what perhaps would be the midfield pairing, and then Davis would be a squad player. So it's interesting with Loftus Cheek because I don't see a central midfield partnership of Loftus Cheek and Ward Prowse because there isn't a sitter there. So I, I'm interested does Ward Prowse then sit and play that pivoting role, and does Loftus Cheek? use his physicality further up the pitch because he, him and Romeo are completely different types of player. What I do like about Loftus-Cheek is that he can finally give us someone who can challenge Armstrong and provide cover in that wide attacking midfield role, which is something that he did uh, for Crystal Palace, um, has done for Chelsea, and he, he can play centrally, but he can also play as a kind of inside wide man that makes sense what well, Armstrong does that wide number 10 so if we could get him in brilliant but I still think we would need a yeah a Sangara a, a Diallo a Davis somewhat a combative midfield player uh, because you, you need at least one when you've got only two central midfielders you can't play two progressive central midfielders because our back four need protection what about th- just to think about this point, if we weren't to bring in someone from the Premier League and we got someone like Diallo, young uh, young midfielder for Brest, what if it's the same situation with Salasu where he needs to get up to speed of Ralph and then suddenly we're left with another player who can't play for another few weeks? Do you think it would be more beneficial to get someone from the Premier League maybe on loan instead of investing straight away in someone who is offering from what we what we've been told maybe you know some way down the list of replacements for Hoiberg but it is a name and we'd probably get him in permanently would you prefer to bring in Loftus-Cheek for a year and then bring in someone like Diallo next summer or in January or maybe like someone like Veerman would you prefer Loftus-Cheek now to fill the gap and then build on next summer by bringing in someone like that? I'd love to get someone of the calibre of Loftus-Cheek the problem I have is that if we do get him we still need a sitter in midfield you talk about fitness and everything else. I mean, these these guys, the season started already. You know, they had whatever pre-season they would have had with their clubs in France. Uh, if we're talking about Diallo, for instance, he would have been training, playing just with Brest instead of with Southampton. So you'd expect that he'd already be up to up to match fitness uh, as much as 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 we are. I don't know when when that league started. If it was if they're slightly behind us or not. But regardless of whether we got Loftus-Cheek or not, I still think we would need someone to to play where Romeo plays because otherwise, if we get Loftus-Cheek, 
I don't know who misses out in the starting lineup for him to come in because it can't be Romeo. Because I don't think Will Prowse can play that that defensive midfield role. Or maybe he could, but you talk about how lightweight Will Prowse is. But his his game, his competitive side of his game, has come on since then. But we certainly would we would have Will Prowse sitting, and we wouldn't have him in and around the penalty box. We'd allow Loftus Cheek to do that instead which is interesting. I can maybe see it working. Usually he's played alongside either Romeo or Hoybiak, who sit, so we're not used to seeing Will Prowse in that role. But it's something that he could potentially do. And and certainly going forward, Loftus-Cheek would, would provide more threat uh, in an attacking sense for a central midfielder than anyone has done for us in the last year. And I include Will Prowse in that. So... Yeah, I'd, ta- I'd definitely take him now if we could get him. I just see that meaning that either Romeo plays and Will Prowse doesn't, which isn't going to happen, or Will Prowse changes his game slightly. Um, uh, the, the other one in the pipeline, it seems as well, is, is um, Sessegnon. He doesn't seem to go away. Sounded like he was going to Celtic. That seems to have quieted down now. Uh, Saints up there with another couple of clubs. But again, for a loan deal that you presume would be quite simple to get over the line hasn't happened yet for anyone so is there a stumbling block with a loan fee which seems to be the uh, seems to be the fashion at the moment with the likes of Barkley going 11 million for a loan just beyond belief you know is, is Levy doing what he usually does and, and trying to get a, trying to get a fee to go along with that loan and it is Sessegnon playing in a position that you feel Saints need to cover. We're talking about Buffal going out the door and Sessegnon playing in that wide role. We've already mentioned Gineppo and Redmond play there already. Or would he be brought in as someone who can, can play on that right-hand side as he has done for Fulham before? I actually don't think that Sessegnon is someone we necessarily need to bring in. He's not in a position that we're like lightweight on. You know, We've already got Redmond and Gineppo on the left side and then obviously Sessegnon used to be a left back but we've got Jake Vokins in behind Bertrand so I don't think it'd be I don't think he's a player that we necessarily need to bring in and I think also why it may be difficult if we are trying to get a deal over the line is that especially with the uh, the way the Hoybier transfer went out I don't think relations between Southampton and Spurs are currently at their best especially with the negotiations and obviously there was that rumour that Spurs had asked Saints for the availability for Danny Ings and Saints had pretty much told them where to stick it. So I, if we were to then come along and say, can we have Sessegnon off you? I'm sure that Spurs would probably bleed us for every single penny that they could get out of us to get that yeah. deal over the line. Yeah. And like I, you said, he's a left-sided player and actually it's right back we need to cover. So I don't actually think Sessegnon is a player that we actually need, whether it's agent talk, trying to just drum up some interest for him at the end. Uh, Ornstein and the Athletic has said that we are in contention. But at the moment, we all the there's nothing that seems to be concrete at the moment. It, in the media, it seems to be we are, we've expressed interest. We're in contention. There's no we're in talks or anything like that. And yeah, we don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes. And Saints have no, like, are notorious for the past few years of trying to keep things as under wraps as possible. And Martin Simmons was actually quite um, not angry, but he was very surprised that the Salisu story had got out before it actually had been completed. Now we know the way the media works, anything you can't keep anything under wraps, but Saints really, really try to keep it as quiet as possible. It's Monday night. The clock has just hit five. Assuming no late deals such as like Danzo, whatever that takes us another couple of hours. What are you, what do you think will be, on uh, who do you think 
we may have brought in if we bring in anybody. I can see us getting up down to transfer deadline day, still having not brought anyone in, having missed out more, more rumours, Loftus-Cheek going to West Ham, Diallo going to Leicester, missing out on players, um, being told that we can't have Sesson Young and going to sleep Monday night, having not signed anyone and then bringing in Tom Davis on a loan, having applied for an extension to the to the transfer deadline a la Danzo last season. Um, what was your answer to the question? We, we just spoke a lot, I'm not sure we got an answer as to what you would consider by deadline deadline day as, as a, a window that you're not disappointed by. So, yeah, what would have you, not even necessarily in good spirits, but you kind of think, actually, we've done the minimum required there. We've got Salisu, we've got Walker Peters. Is it one player? Is it two? Are there, you know, the central midfielders, obviously, an option. You mentioned Loftus-Cheek. If we just got Loftus-Cheek and no one else, would you be happy? Yeah, I think I think I would be, because if we're going to bring in, a, if we're going to bring in someone on loan, I want them to be someone who can go into the first team straight away. Not someone like Tom Davis who's going to come in, as you said, to be a squad player. I want someone who, well, maybe maybe not waltz straight into the first team, but someone that you think, okay, yeah, they're going to play a lot of first team games for us. Not someone like Tom Davis who's just going to sit on the bench for the entirety of the season. I want someone who can actually progress the team rather than someone who's a bit of a stopgap, as it were. So I would be happy if we sign a, a centre midfield of a decent calibre and I'd be happy with that no more. Okay, yeah. So if Loftus Sheet came in, and that was it, we'd be happy. If Loftus Sheet came in, I'd be very happy with that sign in. I'm not, I, I think I'd still look at the window as a whole and think we we needed to strengthen elsewhere. A worry for me is right back. If Walker Peters gets injured, and it's likely at some point he will miss games, whether it's injury or suspension. I mean, he almost got sent off first game of the season. We've got Jan Valerie. Our regular listeners will know our thoughts on him. Apparently, Ralph doesn't fancy him either. And we literally, apart from James Ward-Prowse, we will not want to play there, Ralph. Uh, we don't have any other options. So, you know, I'll, I'll, we mentioned it before. I still think we should have gone for someone like Cash. I think Cash could have offered us options and cover at right back and right midfield. Villa got him. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think we need two signings. I think we need, and I think the most pivotal one is a is a holding midfielder, or not even a holder, but just an energetic one, um, good on the ball, but it's combative in midfield. Um, yeah, if we got Tom Davis and another, I'd be all right with that as a as a kind of minimum. But yeah, the way things are now, we just need a central midfielder in the door, and I think that is the the absolute minimum. Let's talk then about the transfer window. Generally mentioned, I mean, one team for me that clearly backs by wealthy owners, but that brought in players that both you and I have said that we wanted Saints to buy in an ideal world, and it's changed my outlook on what they might do this season. Is um, is Aston Villa? I think Villa signed Grealish to a long-term deal. Brilliant for them. They spent sort of circa fifteen million on on cash, I think. At right back, who was our first choice um, ahead of Walker Peters from Forest, and and he slotted in there, and then they brought in Ollie Watkins as well. I, I still don't think they sh- he's worth thirty million, mind you, but he's in the door now, and the money isn't Dean Smith's problem; it's not the fans' problem. The owners have paid that, so effectively 
they've brought in from the championship two top players in Watkins and Cash. And then they've also brought in Martinez in goal, who's a, who's a maybe not played a lot of games, but certainly looks at a proven standard of Premier League goalkeeper and a, a player that Aston Villa have been lacking for a long time between the sticks, who, who was just a, a kind of a set and forget. They had Heaton, who came in, who was injury prone. They got Rayner in on a, on a loan. They've had the likes of Nyland. Now they've got Martinez, who they've bought uh, permanently as their number one. And they don't, sort of don't, won't have to worry about that for a long time unless he gets poached by one of the big boys. And you mentioned Leicester as well. Leicester are another team who they just do their business in the right way, like Saints used to do. They don't lose their big players unless they go and win the league. You know, So I think that, that the players that they've brought in, Castagna is another one. Lose Chilwell, bringing Castagna looks like his forward numbers could be even better than Chilwell's. You've got him and you've got Pereira when he comes back. Dennis Pratt is a player that Saints were interested in for a long time and he would be a good good player to play in an Armstrong role now. So they've got going for them and, and Brendan Rodgers has kind of got that do of that poor form last season, second half of last season sort of. Uh, out of the system and and they're absolutely on fire but I think yeah Castagno looks like a, a early early shout for signing of the, of the season so far yeah I've been really impressed with him so far I've actually uh, moved him already into my fantasy team they got West Ham this weekend so hopefully he can get me the points for that yeah I agree with completely with you regarding Aston Villa I've I mean I had them to go down and they've made some really good signings they've started the season really well 100% record yeah they're doing they they they've really they've really sort of changed my mind uh, at the moment I probably have them now if we were to do this at the end of the transfer window and I'd probably say that they were they they would stay up and maybe finish comfortably maybe the lower half of mid table I think they've done really really well I think teams that maybe have not done so well Fulham they've made some so they've made some signings and it seems not to have gone into their heads at all. They've got Lamina and they haven't even played him yet. They've got a really good standard of goalkeeper. But, you know, for someone who's played for Real Madrid, PSG, there's not much you can do when the defence in front of you is leaving four players unmarked at the back post. To be honest, no goalkeeper in the world is going to be able to uh, show off what they can do when you're the, the back four in front of you is so poor. Other teams... just, just to highlight, you had, uh, just to highlight, you had uh, Fulham finishing above Aston Villa in your predictions, didn't you? You had Aston Villa finishing 19th and Fulham 18th. I mean, those those are set now. So uh, we'll look back on those at the end of the season, but you're already, already expecting a bit of a, uh, a laugh looking back at those ones. Definitely, and I think both. Uh, I can't believe I've got them got them above now. I thought Fulham might be uh, have a bit of defensive solidarity, but it shows not. But I think also egg on both of our faces for having Leicester in tenth or something, yeah. because now they look like they could really push for another another top four challenge. But again, we're only three games into the season. Who Huddersfield were top of the league after four games when they were here, and then they ended up just about scraping survival. So. I know they're a different calibre of team, but still. I'd add, I'd add, I'd add um, Everton into that list as well. I think Aston Villa, Leicester and Everton, I think their signings going forward and, and the uh, resurgence of Dominic Calvert-Lewin early on, um, Everton look in a good vein of form at the moment. It'll just be interesting to see once that stops, how that team deals with maybe a... a, a a patch of, of poor form where maybe they go two or three games without a win 
Um, we had them finishing in around 10th, I think, and no higher. At the moment, they're looking good. To add to Fulham, I mean, we both said they'd go down anyway. Fulham, I'd maybe say Burnley. It'd be interesting once they get that squad fit and back together. But right now, Sean Dyche looks like he's, he's heading for the door, fed up, doesn't want to... You know, the, the team don't look to have anything about them, really. And they look like they might struggle. The only other thing I might add is, uh, are you still happy with your choice for league champions or are you starting to come over to the red side and expect Liverpool? You had Man City, I had Liverpool and Man City just been dropped at home by Leicester in season five goals. You're still, still confident on that? I'm not going to throw in the towel just yet. So it's early <laughs> days, early days. Although Chelsea are going to have to get their act together if they want to finish high up in the table. I know it's a case of their team United as well. Yeah, I know it's a case of loads of signings. They need to gel. But um, at the moment, someone who's really looked actually quite ineffective has been Timo Werner. And I think it's a point that you made that seems to be really sort of uh, home truths now, as it were, is that Werner will not flourish in a side that keeps possession and tries to occasion just try and work it into the box where he's in more into a counter-attacking side and as shown oh, so kind of Torres comparison I made yeah and as it's shown so far he has seemed a little isolated and struggled to get in the into matches at the moment I watch him and I love his movement I had him in my fantasy football team up until yesterday but I decided I had to take him out because everyone else was his movement's great and you do think that he will score goals I'm sure he'll score goals he'll probably start this week with a hatchet now taking him out like fantasy team but he seems to be playing off of the left as opposed to down the middle and I think once Frank's got everyone fit and he's got his team on paper and he's got Havertz playing in the number 10 Werner up front and he's got Pulisic and Zayac available then we'll start to see the best of Timo Werner and the best of Chelsea though that will be the front four I'm, I'm pretty sure of it at the moment seeing Havertz playing false nine the amount of times I've seen Werner I think when you've got pace as a striker you get shoved out on the wing and when you're showing willing, like Werner is, the amount of times I've seen him back at right back or left back helping his defence out. And I think, how the hell are you going to score a goal, even on the break, if you're by your own corner flag? I think maybe he needs to be a little bit more selfless mm. as a uh, as a striker in the Premier League. The other big talking point, as we, uh, as we start talking more of a general football chat, is this bloody handball law. Just as VAR looks like it's starting to work and they've got the pitch side monitors... And, you know, football's changed and we know it has and that's just the way it is. But I, I think they are, compared to last season, they seem to have fine-tuned it a bit with the, the whole don't lift your flag until the ball's in the net for offside. Referee, go and have a look and tell us what you think, which we were crying out for last season. Now, that all seems to be working well, but the referees, reluctantly, are going to give about seven penalties a game because the ball brushes someone's fingertip when it's in their pocket and uh, and and that's deemed that's deemed a penalty. I mean, there have there has been movement this week after the Premier League's had discussions, but I, I don't I don't know if it's going to help because the laws can't be changed halfway through the season. I don't know if it's just going to 
confuse referees and match officials. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was thinking, how can you change the law halfway through the season? Because then isn't there an element that you need to replay the games beforehand, such as Spurs against Newcastle, which was, you know, that was that was a bit that was a bit of a fast. Yeah, it's not in a natural position. Eric Dyer's hand is not in a natural position, but still, there's nothing he can do about it if he's jumped and he's facing away from the ball. It's just your natural way that you jump you do lift your arms and yeah he has made his body bigger he has made his body bigger but at the rate we're going there's going to be you know hundreds and hundreds of penalties come the end of the season and it's it's quite it's quite remarkable really and then of course with the new everything bar handball at the moment is fine they've got it sorted the offside yeah it's it's millimeters but that's what we've come to expect from last season the handball rule is where we have the problem. And now it's going to be a case of uh, have more leniency. And then it's going to be a case of now it's going down to the opinion of the referee once more of a case of is that he's put his hand out? Is that making his body bigger? Is he moving it? And the thing is that VAR doesn't help with because there's nothing wrong with the technology itself, but everything looks so much worse in slow motion. No one really seems to watch it at the pace that it was done. And it's slowed down and you watch it really, really carefully as it hits the hand and it makes it look like he's deliberately handballed it. Whereas if you play it at the normal speed, it's like, oh, yeah, there's no way you can get out, get out of that. I don't let, me, let, me just reel off a, let me just reel off a list um, to see if you remember and you can tell me whether you think it's a penalty or it's not a penalty. Crystal Palace against Lindelof. I wouldn't have given it as a penalty because his arm is tucked in and I he's blasted it at him from about two yards. There's no way. And he, he's not making yeah. his body bigger and there's no way that he can move his arm about. That's, that's, a, that's a common theme here. Southampton against Doherty. Yeah, Jennifer's flicked it up. It's hit him in the... It's, it's actually come off Harry Winks. I watched it earlier again. It comes off Harry Winks. He's just got his arm horizontal as he's kind of shepherding Gineppo. I say I would say I I would I personally wouldn't give it, but I think it's a case of I you, you've seen them given just purely because his arm is out. Yeah, it's from a couple of yards away, but also his body is sort of slightly bigger. But we'd still say no. Okay. Yeah, John Ward for Palace against uh, I forget it was against Stab John Ward the other day. The one against Everton, yeah, where his arm is sort of he he can't even put it much closer to his side really. So. No, I wouldn't give that one. Yeah, there are others. All of those were given. And the fast around the, the, the Man United one was that it was given wrongly. That's probably the worst of the lot. He couldn't have, unless he chopped his own arm off, he couldn't go out of the way of that. And then they gave the penalty and justice was done when it was saved. By De Gea, it was his first penalty save in a long, long time. And then because his heel had slightly come off the, the ground on the line, got to retake it again which is completely farcical. I think out of all of them, the um, the Malpai one was Hamble. He's jumped up, he's led with his arm, and he's blocked the, the shot just quite stupidly. Interestingly, the, the Eric Dyer one, under the new kind of, not a new rule, because it hasn't been changed, we'll go into that, but the Eric Dyer one against Andy Carroll still would have been given. The Premier League... And the professional game match officials limited, so that's the the body of response for the referees, have both lobbied together to um, to the IFAB, who are the rule changes, so that they make the rules on handball or um, to to change the rule because it's become a farce, and and especially regarding uh, the idea of, of the, when the arm is above head height, so. The, the law can't be changed midway through a season, so we're stuck with it. So the Premier League clubs have met remotely um, on Tuesday 
to discuss the handball ruling. And they've asked the PGMOL, which is the body of referees in the Premier League, to change their approach on how they interpret decisions. So, like you said, there's going to be leniency. There's going to be more subjectivity. These are all very, very vague terms. The IFAB, as I said, the International Football Associations Board, can't change anything until the next AGM in March, and the rule won't become effective until June the 1st. So we're stuck with it, as it is, internationally, as, as the rule is. However, the way in which the law is going to be interpreted, they're essentially asking referees to use a bit of common sense. But suddenly, it becomes a huge grey area where referees, do they stick by the letter of the law in order to then have a... Have a excuse and say, look, I gave it because it's the law, not my fault. Or do they start to use subjectivity and then does does it become uh, dependent on which referee? Yeah, because then it's then it's human error. One referee might interpret something as handball, one might not. And then you get games where you know points aren't aren't distributed evenly. You know, one team wins a game because one referee thinks it's a penalty Another one, the exact same thing happens, but another team don't get a penalty. You know, is this going to muddle things up even more? Something has to be done. The law can't change. So I, I suppose this is all they can do. Yeah, it, it does. It, it's a massive grey area. I'll tell you one thing, though. It, Mike Dean will have a massive smile on his face because this he loves all the drama and the giving of the penalties. He will be licking his lips thinking, oh, I can... I can really make myself a bit of a hero here. But I feel like, obviously, you can't change the law in the begin- in the middle of the season because then you're making a mockery of all the games beforehand. I think it, we're going to have to just see how it goes. And I agree completely. I think that with this new era of, of leniency, it'll depend on which referee you have in charge of your match. One, one may think that's a penalty. The other one may not think that's a penalty. And then you're left back with the fact that it's a game of, a, of opinions, really, of who would you give that? Would you not give that? And it all depends on what team of officials you have on the day. It's obviously, it's obviously a bit of a farce and we're having so many penalties at the moment whether we're going to see a reduction but then is it going to be a case of you need to be more lenient and then referees are now giving uh are not giving penalties because they're scared of the fact that it's maybe saying that you're not being lenient enough so are we going to be left with that is the main the main the main sort of change of interpretation is that anything that hits the hand above head height in the box would still be a penalty. So Eric Dyer had his hands in the air, he's facing the other way, he's jumping up to win the ball. A lot of people, most people thought it wasn't a penalty. That would still be given as a penalty. But a deflection off of a hand by a player's side, i.e. Joe Ward against Everton, would be viewed differently. Now, that doesn't mean that wouldn't be given. And you know, it, it's a temporary fix for the next six months. Obviously, October the 1st, today, eight months, exactly until June. So for the next eight months, that's a temporary fix until we can sort the rules out. And you'd think that the referees are going to have to do a little bit more training and we'll get together so there's some consistency because uh, you know, we can't go having what has been something, the ridiculous number of, I saw on Sky, ridiculous number of penalties given in the first three game weeks it would lead us with having having something like 180 penalties for handball throughout the season whereas the average was something like 12 yeah, it's, it's astonishing so that obviously has to stop 
and it seems like the only way that it can be done. Yeah, and we're going to have to deal with it for uh, for the next eight months or so. And I wonder just how many penalties we are going to be left with come the end of the season. Callum, we've we've gone through all of the topics that we wanted to discuss. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to the episode and we've gone through everything and it hasn't turned into a complete rant of Southampton's transfer dealings. But we're going to go into the West Brom game. Hopefully Saints are going to get another three points and then go into the international break with a with a decent return, in my opinion. And then we will join you again at the end of the window, the transfer window, and we can uh, have a review of what has happened and maybe if there's going to be any changes to our predictions more now that the window is, has uh, has closed. So if you want to find the podcast on Twitter, ask us any questions, you can find it at under underscore saints. You can find myself at T214Murray. You can find me on Twitter at Callum Wilson 21 uh, Thank you very much for listening. As we said, uh, West Brom on Saturday, hopefully three points off into the international break with with Ward Prowse and Danny Ings getting a good chance to show Gareth Southgate what they can do. And, uh, and we'll be back probably just after the international break, hopefully reviewing the new signings for Southampton, the three points against West Brom, and looking ahead to that game against Chelsea in a little bit of a more positive frame of mind. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much. My name's Callum Wilson. My name's Tom Murray, and have a good rest of your evening.